Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, this message is one of those, and I've said this before, but there are both pros and cons to text-driven preaching. One is you work through the text and you always have a sermon outline because the Bible is your sermon outline. The con is sometimes you get to weeks where you're like, oh my word, what in the world am I going to do with this? And it's challenging because God's word is not always this just epiphany of like, oh man, it all makes sense. Sometimes you gotta dig and you gotta seek and you gotta search. And this morning's message is, I'm just gonna give you a little precursor. Jesus is gonna talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and what all this looks like and he's the bread of life and all of this crazy stuff. And so if you've been with us for a little while, you know that I like to walk through the text and kind of work our way through it slowly and then apply it. This morning is gonna be a little bit more of an overshot. We're going to read through the text and then we're gonna see how it applies because really in America, in this culture, we have created this sort of evangelism that is totally I-centered. As if I can come to God on my terms whenever I want to come to God, whenever my needs need to be met. That's not what Jesus is saying in this text. And so if you'll hang with me through the duration of this message, I think we're going to see something amazing. And it is how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, how they all work together in this beautiful offer of salvation and how it does not depend upon us, but it all depends upon Him, upon God, upon the Father drawing men to Himself through what the Son accomplished on the cross as the Holy Spirit draws and convicts men of sin and draws them to Himself. It's beautiful. And if you'll hang with me, I, I think we're going to see the amazing heart of God that he would choose to come and set the captives free. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 41. And I'm going to pray before we get going, and we're going to launch into it. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that even when we're weak, you're strong. God, I thank you that your word is alive, that it is living and active. God, I thank you that it is able to turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. God, and I pray this morning that you would clarify my words. God, that nothing would escape from my mouth that is not of your heart. God, that if there's something in my flesh that wants to escape, that you would replace it with your spirit, God, and just convey truth. So God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're faithful, and we thank you that you do indeed draw men unto yourself. So God, have your way in this place this morning. Holy Spirit, do your work. And we pray this in the powerful, risen name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 41, says this, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So last week, we talked about this irrevocable offer that God has given to his people and how Jesus was saying he is the bread of life. He is the only way. And so the Jews here are grumbling at themselves saying, who is this man? Who is this guy that would call himself the bread of life? Who is this guy that would claim to be God? Who is this guy? And they're grumbling amongst each other. 
And Jesus says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Put yourselves in their shoes. Right? This is a man that they had grown up with. This was a man that was born of a virgin, that was born in a manger as we celebrated on Christmas. And they're thinking, this Jesus, who is the son of Joseph and Mary, we grew up with this guy, and now he's claiming that he came from heaven? He's claiming that he's God? I mean, no wonder they're grumbling among themselves, right? That would be like someone in this congregation this morning that comes up and says, man, I came down from heaven, and I am the bread of life. And you would look at him cross-eyed like, what are you talking about, bro? Right? Like, that is where they're at. These Jews are saying, this Jesus is claiming to be God. Verse 43, then Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're going to talk about this in a little bit, so I'm not going to spend any time on it right now. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they say all will be taught by God. This is in reference to Isaiah 54, 13, where Isaiah says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be what? The peace of your children, because this is what God grants to the people that come to him, is peace. The prophet said, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is saying, everyone who has heard of this great king, everyone who has learned of him and actually believes on who he is, comes to the Father. How, how can't he? With this irresistible offer of grace and mercy and love, if you truly know who God the Father is, you will be drawn to him for his grace and his mercy and his love. Verse 46, not that everyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, Jesus, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus is saying, whoever comes to me and believes, I will grant eternal life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. We saw Jesus reference this earlier in John chapter 6 in verses 30 and 33. And so really he's reintroducing this idea of this manna that had fell from heaven to feed the nation of Israel. But he's saying, listen, I am telling you by evidence that is irrefutable, they depended upon this manna for natural life and they died. But Jesus is saying, I am the bread that comes from heaven that you shall never die if you believe upon me. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the bread, for, for life, for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, before we go on, I want to say this. This is not, Jesus is probably not referencing the Lord's Supper. As we're going to go on, Jesus is going to talk about eating his, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But it's interesting that John uses the word flesh here. In no other gospel, when Jesus refers to the Lord's Supper, does he use flesh? He uses body. And we also know from the context that nowhere else in Scripture does it say, you have to eat, literally eat of my bread and, and, and drink of my flesh if you're going to be saved. It's not true. That's weird, right? 
Like, if we had to eat of Jesus and drink of his bread, that, his, his blood, that is just flat out weird. So as we're going forward, this is not in reference to the Lord's Supper. Jesus is going to turn and use as a metaphor to explain who he is and how he offers life. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To the disciples, this would sound very strange. It sounds like some weird vampire movie, right? Like, Jesus is saying, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. But let us not forget that this Jesus is referencing this in the context of feeding the 5,000 and telling his disciples and the people that he is the bread of life. So Jesus is not literally saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. That's not what he's saying. And we'll talk, touch on this in a second. Hang with me, we're going to get through this text, and then we're going to see what it says. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, verse 57 is where we see the shift happen. As the living Father sent who? Me. So Jesus is now saying, I am this flesh. I am this bread. I am this drink. I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, before your eyes glaze over and I lose you, I'm going to finish this last little section, and then we're going to tie it all in together and see what is Jesus saying in this text. Verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, to which I say, amen, brother, <laughs> right? Like, this is a hard saying. This is part of the reason that I'm thinking, what are we going to talk about this morning? This is a hard saying. But what's interesting is this word hard does not just mean hard as in like hard to understand. It actually means harsh, merciless, or offensive. So what they're saying is, Jesus, what you have just said about the Father has to draw, Jesus, what you just said about how we have to eat on your flesh and drink of your blood, this is very offensive, and this is not the Jesus that we want you to be. They took offense to it. They took offense to Jesus saying, this is who I am. You can't come to me on your own terms. You can't come to me unless you, unless you fully see and understand and believe who I am. Unless you come to me, you can have no part of me. And they took offense to this. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, they said. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense to this? Do you really take offense to what I just said because you don't really see it the way I see it or you don't want to believe it the way that I have proclaimed it? You take offense to it? Then he says, verse 52, 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I can just see Jesus thinking, then would you take offense to it? If you literally saw me go back to the place that I descended from, maybe then you would believe that I am the Son of God. Maybe then you would believe that I am who I said I am. And maybe you would take a little less offense because you would see me to be true. And then he says this, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He's saying the Spirit has to draw men to me. You coming to me on your own terms according to how you want me to be is of no help at all. That's merely the flesh. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it is that would betray him. And Jesus, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In the last few verses, after this, after what? After these disciples had taken offense to who Jesus said that he was, it says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Lord, so Jesus said to the twelve, do, do you want to go away as well? I can just see Jesus these disciples, see, these disciples that had gone away earlier were following Jesus, but this was not the 12 disciples that Jesus had chosen to walk with him. So many of these people that were following Jesus took offense to what he said and no longer walked with him. And then Jesus, as he's looking at this, looks at his 12 that he has chosen and says, do you want to leave too? Do you want to leave too because I am not who you thought I should be? Simon Peter answered him, who Peter was always willing to speak his mind, we know that if we know anything about the Gospels, said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is a betrayer? This, 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 he's talking about Judas here, Judas who was going to betray Jesus with a kiss. He said, I chose you 12, so you, Peter, thinking how great you are maybe because you're saying, oh, well, I, I believe Jesus. I came to you on my terms. Jesus squashes it and said, did I not choose you? Don't think, Peter, that you can come to me on your terms. I chose you to be my disciple. It had nothing to do with you, Peter. It had everything to do with me and my love for you to draw you to myself. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So thank you for hanging with me through that. As I was reading this, I was thinking, man, that is a lot of text. But really to do justice to what I believe God is saying, we had to get through it. So with the remainder of our time, this is what I want to do. I want us to see that to understand the beauty of the gospel, you must understand the nature of the gospel. See, to understand this beautiful aspect of what the gospel is, that God draws sinners to himself, we must understand the nature of it. We must understand that it is not me and my merit and my works and myself that just approaches God on my terms, but it's actually the opposite, that God chooses to draw men to himself, to glorify himself, and it all depends on him. And my prayer for this morning is that we would leave seeing a full picture of who God is and a full picture of what the gospel is because it indeed changes 
everything. So the first thing we see is that salvation is determined by the Father. We see that in 644, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is saying, you cannot come to God on your own volition. You cannot come to God on your own merit. You cannot come to God on your own self. You must come to him on his terms. And that the calling of the Father is irrevocable, and you can't run from it. Hear what Paul says in Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who were predestined or predetermined, he also called or drew to himself. And those who he called drew to himself, he also justified or declared as righteous. And those who he justified, declared as righteous, he also glorified or made perfect and will raise him up on the last day, as Jesus has said over and over and over in John chapter 6. See, Paul is saying that God draws men to himself, that God has called men to himself, that he knows what he's doing and it does not depend upon us. We also see that this calling hinges on the mercy of God, not on the pursuit or the works of man. Romans 9, 14 through 16 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on what? Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Jesus is saying here in this text that no one comes to the Father, or no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. See, it is determined by the Father. Salvation is determined by the Father. And this mercy that Paul talks about is this eternal security that you cannot lose your salvation. See, the big lie in American Christianity is, oh, well, they walked away, or, oh, man, they were saved, and now they're not saved. Well, biblically, that is impossible. You can't lose your salvation. The question is really, were you ever saved to begin with? And that's what that's what Jesus is saying, that's what Paul is saying, and that's this mercy of eternal security because the calling of God is irrevocable. Think about this. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking if you can come to Jesus by your own free will, then you can also leave Jesus by your own free will. But if you were drawn to Jesus through the will of the Father, then you will also be secured in Jesus through the will of the Father. It's this idea of, if I come to Jesus on my terms, if I do the things that I think I need to do, and I do all in myself and come to Jesus, I can also walk away from him. And I think this is that idea of, th this, this idea in the American Christianity that, oh, well, I just, I'm, I just walked away. Well, you can't walk away. Because if you walked away, you've never been in him to begin with. You came to Jesus on your own will, on your own volition, on your terms. See. The amazing thing is that God is so sovereign that he draws men to himself. Security comes through our adoption as sons and daughters. Think of this, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Did you know that one of the greatest representations of God's election for his people is adoption? It's adoption. Linda Hooper was an elementary school teacher. And there was this little boy named Cruz who was in their school, and he, by her words, said that he was a holy terror. Like this kid was just out of control. And she saw him every day in class. She, never, she wasn't his teacher yet, but he would just run around the halls, go crazy, no respect for anyone, nothing. And then this little boy came into the sixth grade, which Mrs. Hooper taught. And she said this, when, when he came into her classroom, she saw a different side of him, and she said this, and I quote, he was simply a kid in a very rough situation with absolutely no hope. So here's this little boy going crazy, coming from a family that had wanted nothing to do with him, and she saw that he was just this little boy with an unfortunate situation and no hope. Kind of reminds me of myself in regards to the gospel. And she said it was in this moment that her and her husband began to be burdened for this little boy, and they brought him to their home, and they would pay him to do side jobs every couple, couple days a week, and he just began to hang around more and more. And finally, at the age of 12, his stepdad kicked him out of the home and put him to the streets. He had nowhere to go. This little boy, 12 years old, no longer has a home. And so Mrs. Hooper and her husband began to talk, and they ended up bringing this boy into their home and adopting him as their own. This boy who had left this home, who had been booted from this home, had nowhere to go, and these two parents came and said, Cruz, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to legally claim you as my own. You now have a home. You are now secure, and you now have a place. See, the amazing thing about adoption is it had nothing to do with Cruz. It had everything to do with Mrs. Hooper and her husband. They chose to come into this kid's situation, to pluck him from a hopeless situation, and give him hope. And this is the heart of God. That we are all adopted as sons and daughters, that we were all bound to sin and death, that we were all separated from a holy God because of sin, and God in his mercy and God in his love came to heaven and said, I choose you to pull you out of the muck and the mire, and I adopt you as my own. It's the most beautiful representation of the heart of God as he draws men and women boys and girls to himself. Why? Because he loves his people fiercely. He loves you fiercely. Did you know that? That the God of heaven loves you fiercely. If you were here on Christmas Eve, we saw that part of what God with us means is that Jesus that he, he sees you, he cares for you, he loves you, and he fights for you. He is with you. Why? Because he has adopted you as his own, if you are in 
Christ. See, we are that same kid in a rough situation with no hope but God. But God determined to draw men to himself. Charles Spurgeon says this, Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation, and those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. And then he says this, if they could know that the Lord has chosen them, it would make their hearts dance with joy. To know that the God of heaven came to earth and has chosen to set you free. Makes your heart dance with joy. So we see that salvation is determined by the Father. The second thing we see, and we see in this text, is it is accomplished in the Son. It is accomplished in the Son. This was the whole reason Jesus was talking about being the bread of life and talking about flesh and blood, was saying, it is all accomplished in me. You must come to me and believe me for who I am. Not for who you want me to be, but for who I am. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, salvation was accomplished in Jesus because he died and rose again. In the Old Testament, the only way to atone or forgive sin was the sacrificing of perfect blood. From an animal with no defect, with no, with, with no deformation, nothing, it had to be this perfect animal, and they would lay it on the altar, and as the blood was spilled, this is what atoned or forgave the sins of the nation of Israel was this blood. Leviticus 17.10 says this, If anyone in the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood and will cut him off from amongst his people, which is part of the reason why the Jews took offense to Jesus saying, You have to drink my blood because for the Jews they were not allowed to touch blood. And then it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar, why? To make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, the only way for sin to be forgiven is the sacrificing of perfect blood, and this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to fulfill this. He laid himself on the altar, on the cross, let his blood spill forth so that sin might be forgiven because it was the only way. See, salvation is accomplished in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I came to become the perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in yourself. No, in God. 
Because Jesus came to atone for sin. Jesus came and laid himself on the altar, hung himself on the cross, that the life that was in his blood was poured forth to the ground. Why? To defeat death, to give life. See, salvation only comes through the Son, and that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He's saying, you must come to me on my terms because salvation is through me. Our salvation is secured because of Jesus. R.C. Sproul says this, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Think about the beauty in that statement. That we are not secure because of the way that we hold on to Jesus, but we are secure because of the way Jesus holds on to us through what he accomplished on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more beautiful in all of creation than this than the king of heaven who came and willingly hung himself on a cross so that you might be given life. John 6, 39 says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we've seen that salvation is determined by the Father. It's accomplished in the Son. And the third aspect of the Trinity that deals with salvation is this, that Salvation, it is applied through the Holy Spirit. Verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, unless the Spirit of God moves in a way that draws men unto himself, no man can be saved. It's the Spirit of God that convicts of sin. It's the Spirit of God that is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of the inheritance of those who what? God has adopted. The Holy Spirit is our peace. He is our hope. He is our strength. The Bible even says that we've been given the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. But if the Holy Spirit is absent from salvation, there is no salvation at all. And I think one of the great lies in American Christianity is we have created almost a culture of emotion to try to draw people to lift their hands and give their lives to Jesus when this, motion, this emotion is not necessarily a representation of the Holy Spirit of God moving. It could be a great manipulation. See, what we see, what Jesus is saying is it is the Spirit that gives life the flesh is of no help at all. You can't come to Jesus on your own terms. You can't come to him and, and just say, all right, God, I figured it's my time now. I'm going I'm to walk to you today. And then, oh, man, I just got fired. Well, whatever, that Jesus thing isn't for me. That's not salvation. See, salvation is when the Spirit of God comes in and radically transforms your heart. Why? Because you believe in the finished work of Jesus, because the Father has drawn you to himself. If all three are not part of salvation, there is no salvation. Amen. This is the beauty of salvation, is that this trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, works together in perfect unison. Why? To adopt son and daughters as his own and give them it's beautiful. See, how can men be given spiritual life? 
They must be plucked from spiritual death. How are you plucked from spiritual death? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Believing upon the finished work of Jesus as God draws men to himself. So how is salvation applied to the Holy Spirit? This could be like a six-week sermon in itself, but basically I'm just going to say two things today. The first is he convicts of sin. We see this in John 16. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it or like this force or like this magical deity. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person in the Trinity. He is God. So don't view him as like, oh yeah, it, oh, oh man, I hope it shows up today. Well, what is it? Like my tennis shoe, (laughs) right? Or like, what is it? The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person in the Trinity, and Jesus says this. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. All that to say is that one of the Spirit's role, his role is to convict us of sin so that we might be drawn to a great Savior. Because see, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we do not even know the depth of the depravity of our sin. But the Holy Spirit tenderly comes in and speaks to us and convicts us. Why? To draw us to Jesus so that we might lay our sins at the cross and say, God, I am a wretched sinner. Save me and set me free. The second thing is this. He is the one who guarantees the promises of God. Ephesians 1, 13-14, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think of how beautiful this is, that the Holy Spirit of God is our seal that marks us as sealed in the gospel, the guarantee of our inheritance that is to come. So as we look at this, really, our response to the gospel, as we look at this, that the Father has to draw, you have to believe in the Son, and the Holy Spirit has to convict of sin, the Holy Spirit has to bring us to this place where we can lay ourselves down and say, Jesus, I believe, There's two responses. One is you either take great offense to it, like we saw in here, the disciples that left said, well, I'm not following that Jesus. I want to come to him on my terms. I want to come to him on the way that I want to come to him. I'm not following that Jesus. That could be your response. Or you could stand in awe of the mercy and love of God and seek to follow him. There's really two responses. See, did you know that by the nature, the gospel is offensive? I don't want someone to sit here and tell me, man, Luke, you are a sinner, man. You are awful. Like, you really need a savior. Like, can you believe you did that? Like, it's offensive. The gospel is offensive that God says that we are a sinner in need of a savior. But this offense brings beauty when we lay ourselves at his feet. Because then we see it's not offensive. It's actually the greatest love that could ever be extended. 
is that God would choose to set us free. See, if we truly understand this idea of the sovereignty of God, the power of the gospel, it compels us to do two things. One is rest in the assurance of our salvation with great joy. And the second is preach the gospel to whomever will hear. One of the things that breaks my heart is this great debate of like Calvinism, Arminianism. God does all the work, man does all the work. Somewhere like it breaks my heart. The more that I study the word of God, the more that I see that God has to draw, God has chosen, God has elected, but I also see that he desires that none would perish and all would come to repentance. So the more that we understand the heart of God in this doctrine of election, in this doctrine of salvation, the more we should want to preach the gospel. Why? Because we don't know whom God has chosen, but we know his heart is that none would perish and all would come to repentance. So this idea of God drawing men to himself does not cause us to sit back and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. I ain't doing anything because God's chosen his people and he's elected his people and he'll take care of it. Did you know that God has called us to be a part of this amazing plan that draws men to himself? And do you know the excitement that comes with that? If we will fully grasp and understand who God is. It does not cause us to sit back and wait. It causes us to stand up, to roll up our sleeves, to button our shirt, and preach the gospel to as many people as we're here. Charles Spurgeon also said this, I know the Lord has blessed my appeals to all sorts of sinners, and none shall stop me in giving free invitations as long as I find them in this book. What book? The Bible. And I do cry with Peter this morning in this vast assembly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. For the promise is unto you and your children, even to as many as the Lord our God should call. See, we don't know how election works. We don't know how God works out the sovereignty of himself for the purpose of his plan, but we do know one thing. That he draws men to himself and he desires that none would perish. That all would come to repentance. That all would be given life. Second Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but all should reach repentance. So as I look at this, as I look at how the Father has to draw, how we have to come to the Son on his terms, how the Holy Spirit has to move, I stand with Spurgeon as he says this, Lord, hasten to bring in all thine elect and then elect some more. <laughs> right? Hasten to bring in all thine elect, all those whom you have called, all those whom you have chosen, and then what? Then elect some more. I don't know how that works, but my heart is that the gospel would go forth, that we would be a church that stands upon the gospel, that we would put our foot down and say, you know what, I am not so great, and I can't come to God on my terms, but this God that I serve is worthy of it all, and he has called me, and he has loved me, and this should cause us to stand in awe, that the God of heaven would choose to come to earth 
to adopt me as his own. If that doesn't do something inside of you, if that doesn't stir something inside of you, I ask you to question, to what have you believed? On who have you believed? Because when we understand this, the great love of a mighty God, who draws sinners to himself to give them life, to set them free. It changes everything. And it compels us to preach the gospel. The greatest news the world has ever heard. So if you're in this place this morning, and you have never given your heart to Jesus, know this. Don't get caught up in, well, God probably hasn't called me. Which I would say, if you're in this room, I believe that he has. If you're in this room and your pulse is starting to raise and your heart is starting to beat, that is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you, saying, I have come to set you free. So there is no excuse for someone in this room that says, oh, God just hasn't chosen me because he desires that none would perish. And he has put you in this room for a reason to hear the gospel so that you might be set free. So if that's you this morning... All you have to do is say, God, I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus came to forgive my sin. I'm turning from that sin, and I'm turning to you. I believe that you are who you said you are. Just come to him, bow your knee to him, open up your heart to him, and trust him to set you free. See, this is the power of the gospel that God chooses to come and set his people free, that we might believe upon the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, maybe you thought, man, that was an intense message. To which I say, yeah, it was a little more intense. But sorry, I just played the cards I got dealt. <laughs> So if you have a problem with it, you can take it up with God. But oh, how I desire for us to understand the doctrine of salvation. Because once we do, it literally transforms everything. It transforms our heart for who God is. It allows us to see him through a correct lens. And it allows us to sit back and stand in awe and say, Whoa, oh God, that you would save a sinner like me. Praise you. So thank you guys for hanging with me this morning. And just know this, that if you are in this room and have never been set free, today is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. God is drawing you to himself for one purpose, that you would lift him high and that he would give you life. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that God offers broken people, hopeless people, people with no peace, life, because he has adopted us as his own. God, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for each and every person in this place. God, I thank you for your word. 
And most of all, God, I thank you that in your goodness and in your love, you have chosen to draw men to yourself. God, you have chosen to send your son to make a way for the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. And you have sent your Holy Spirit to do his work in and through us. So God, I pray right now in this moment that your spirit would move in a powerful way. God, and for someone in this room that really just came in here broken, maybe without hope, maybe without peace, maybe this Christmas season was very difficult for them. God, I pray, and even if they don't have a family, maybe they were alone, Maybe they don't have a good representation of what a father figure looks like, God. I pray right now by the power of the Spirit that you would reveal that you are a good, good father. And that you loved them so much that you laid your own son on the altar that they might be given life. So God, if there's someone in this room right now that is just hurting deeply, that needs hope, that needs peace, that needs purpose. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you move inside of them? Would you draw them to Jesus, God? Would you draw men to yourself, God? Would you show them that there is only one hope and his name is Jesus? And God, do something this morning that only your spirit can do to give life, to give hope, to give purpose, give peace. God, in a world of chaos, sometimes all we need is to know that you are near. God, grant a peace that passes all understanding to each and every person in this place. And God, for those that know you, would they leave this place seeing you even more great than they entered it? even more loving and full of mercy, God, would the very fact that you chose to set them free cause them to stand in awe and preach the gospel with power. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for who you are. Now do a work in this place for the sake of your name and not ours, that we might lift you high, that we might give to you the glory that is due your name, that we might dwell in your fullness, all because of the salvation that you have granted us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.